Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Stay Curious, a podcast where we want to encourage diversity in thought without creating division in our community, and where we want to provide a time and a place for you to remember how to think, but not tell you what you should think. I am your co-host, Matt Fisher. I'm the creative director here at Hill City Church, where I am currently, at least one of us is recording. Uh, We have not been in the studio, but I'm here now, uh, and John is still at home. (laughs) So I'm here with my co-host. Yeah, still there. Here with my co-host, pastor of the church, and my friend, John Wagler. John, before we introduce our guest, how are you doing in pandemic 2020? Uh... Rough week and a half coming out of, um, I just honestly not so great of a week. And, um, you know, I had a close friend die and some other stuff happened. And, um, however, feeling much better and, uh, God's doing some cool things. So that's a good thing. And sadly the pandemic's becoming normal to some degree. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, right? We get to see people a little bit more often now. So that's good. There is, there is. And um, today we're going to be doing an episode based on a, an email submission um, from our friend Zachary. He wanted to just kind of hear our perspectives on the idea of faith and civil disobedience. Um, you know, I think over the last few years, there's been a lot of um, stuff going on, everything from Me Too and the Women's March to Black Lives Matter. Um, and even more recently, um, trying to figure out how we respond to stuff like the the murder of Ahmad Arbery, um, and and on the other, you know, on on one side of things, there are people exercising their right by asking that the states reopen. There's just a lot of, um, I think, really in my mind, John. Ever since the 99% thing or the Occupy Wall Street thing, I think the idea of protest and civil disobedience has been much more in the public eye. Um, than than it was prior. Um, so since we were going to talk about civil dis- civil disobedience and faith, we thought, why not just ask Shane Claiborne to come on and talk to us about that? He knows a thing or two. <laughs> he's he's been arrested a bunch. <laughs> we figured we, we'd shoot high. Yeah, so. we'd just shoot high. We need at least one person on this podcast who's been arrested for doing good things. Uh, <laughs> those, those are those are the credentials, huh? Have you been? What what's your criminal record? And you can be on our podcast. That's and- right. That's right. So as you now know, we actually have Shane Claiborne uh, with us on Zoom. Shane, how you doing, bud? I'm I'm doing all right, man. I'm looking across the street and we got hundreds of folks that are getting food uh, here at the Simple Way. That's our little community in Philly. So we're trying to step up and take care of people. We're going through like thousands of pounds of food donated a week. So it's more than we've ever done. But to, to us right now, that's what loving our neighbor looks like. And, uh, you know, we've, we've been saying we want to be cautious and courageous at the same time. So That's awesome. Well, we don't, you know, we want to always encourage, and we do at our church, um, people to read a lot. And um, one of the books that we encourage them to read, or two of the books, are two of your books, which are Jesus for President and Irresistible Revolution. So we don't want to make you recap your whole life because you spent time and effort doing that in your books. Um, But uh, give us just a really short sort of um, the elevator speech about um, the simple way, and then also maybe tell us a little bit about how you went from 
um, churchgoer, Jesus lover to churchgoer, Jesus lover who also was involved in in um, civil disobedience <laughs> and direct action. Yeah, sure, man. Well, I, I, w- I will have to just start with the confession that I, I was a very good kid, you know, growing up. I um, um, was prom king and it just shows you what a small town it was you know but i went you know sunday school and church every week i fell in love with jesus down the bible belt in tennessee and then um i started asking deep questions you know i i uh i i I heard a pastor say if we find ourselves climbing the ladder of upward mobility we better be careful or else on our way up we might pass jesus on his way down and and, you know, I, I, I looked at a lot of Christian history and saw wonderful thinkers like, you know, Jacques Ellul that said, I don't know where we get the notion that Christians are just meant to be normal defenders of the status quo. You know, you look at history and Christians are holy troublemakers, creators of divine mischief, you know, folks that stir stuff up. And 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 uh, and so I, you know, I came up to Philadelphia to go to college. And it's really while I was in college that um this door opened up for me and and the 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 movement that our community was born out of was a group of homeless families who were living in an abandoned church building and technically that became an act of civil disobedience where the church um the, the catholic church that owned this building told them that they had to get out within 48 hours or they could be arrested for trespassing and um these families hung a banner on the front that said, how can we worship a homeless person on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? And they, and they, they held a press conference and they said, "Uh, we'd mean no disrespect to the the Catholic church, uh, but we have very few options here. We don't have anywhere to live and our kids are on the street. And, you know, and, and they, they said uh, at that press conference, we talked to the real owner of this building, the Lord, and God said, we can stay. <laughs> so, you know, that's that. So I was trained by folks that their, their civil disobedience, in a sense, was a part of their survival. It was an act of desperation. I mean, they didn't set out to break the law. They they just didn't have a place to live and moved into an abandoned church building. And, it, you know, it, it, it stirred all of these issues up of, of what's what's right and what's legal. And um, and then it wasn't long after that that our first major um, the first time I got arrested, I'll tell you that little, you know, brief uh, story was when Philadelphia began to, uh, after we had started our community, they passed some laws that were terrible. Um, like many cities in our country, they were anti-homeless laws that um, specifically discriminated against folks on the street. So they made it illegal, for instance, to sleep in public places. Um, one of the ordinances made it illegal to uh, share food on the streets. And so that was the ordinance that we really thought, you know, this is over the top. You know, Jesus says, when I was hungry, did you feed me? And we're not going to let a city ordinance stop us, but we want to do it in the spirit of Jesus. You know, we want to do this with humility. Um, and, but we are willing to go to jail over this, you know, and we, um, very creatively, you know, as we prayed about it, we felt compelled to, begin with a worship service and with communion, which was technically illegal, you know, but it was, uh, was, I, I think, kind of divinely uh, inspired. And so we serve communion, all the police are around and they're like, ah, this is to look terrible. I'm not, maybe I <laughs> want to take communion. You know, so we, we were eventually arrested in that. Um, 
about 30 of us. And in fact, we kept doing it. So we were arrested multiple times and the, 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 the prosecutor wanted, you know, said, these are criminals, they need to go to jail um, and, you know, all kinds of other stuff, pay fines, do community service. That was the kicker, you know, <laughs> uh, but then, um, you know, in court, we won. The, the judge said, uh, uh, he said, listen, What's in question is, isn't whether or not these people broke the law. You don't have to convince me that. It's very clear that they broke the law. The question um, that we got to ask are about these laws that we're passing in our city. And the, 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 the you know, prosecuting attorney said, no, that, that's not before this court. And the judge said, that's before every court in this country. And the judge said, if it weren't for people who broke the bad laws, we wouldn't have the freedom that we have. That's what this country's built on from the Boston Tea Party uh, to the civil rights movement. And, uh, and he said, you know, just as it's a, our job to uh, obey the good laws, it's our job to uh, challenge the bad ones. And so we, you know, he, he uh, released us of all those charges. And um, eventually we kept challenging that. Um, at one point, we, we went to a federal court and appealed that this was a violation of our religious freedom. And we won on that count, too, that, it, it, that this federal judge ruled that it is a violation of your religious freedom to say you can't feed someone. Hmm. Awesome. Thank you for that. That is a fantastic story. I love I love the idea that this life and this um, mission that you've kind of built up really just started from uh, reading the Bible and, and thinking about it a little more. I feel like a lot of the ways that I know for me engaging with your content, it was almost like the opposite. Like I grew up punk and like being very into uh, these ideas of like something's wrong and like not trusting authority. And and I saw a lot of that in the Bible, but it wasn't until I think I read and interfaced with some of your stuff that I understood how those two things, um, though they may have been disordered for me in my cultural life, um, how those two things really came together. So it was almost kind of like, so it's like this really nice, like inverse, um, experience, uh, which I really appreciate. Um, I think, you know, one of the questions we wanted to ask, obviously we're in a very tumultuous time and, um, politically, socially, and now just medically or, you know, societally. Um, and so one of the things we wanted to ask you is as things have continued to progress and you've been doing this through, Bush and Obama and now Trump, um, what do you see as like the role between the church and the government um, and, and sort of what what is when people ask you, maybe if somebody throws Romans 13 at you or people ask you like, well, what are the roles between these two things? What is what is your answer? What's what are your thoughts on that? Sweet, man. Yeah. And, and just uh, going back to your, your, your own little testimony, that was, thanks for sharing that. And I, you know, it's funny because sometimes I'll meet people, you know, I, I work with a lot of folks that have been incarcerated and been through a lot of stuff, you know, and they say, man, my life was such a mess. And then I met Jesus. And I always kind of say back to them, I, my life was pretty together and I met Jesus and he messed me up, you know, (laughs) (laughs) actually only after, after uh, becoming a Christian that I started going to jail, you know, but anyway, (laughs) um, but uh, you know, I, so this is a great question. I think it's, it's, you know, we should spend a little time unpacking a few pieces of your question. Um, One of them is, is that, um, it is the Bible. It is my love for Jesus that causes me to challenge some of these policies and, you know, has led me at times to, to jail. Um, but you look at the Bible and it's full of folks that went to jail, 
right? Um, and Martin Luther King at one point, he, he said, at first I was disturbed, you know, to, to get arrested. And then I looked at, at history and saw what good company I have behind bars. <laughs> you know, I mean, starting with Jesus, who was arrested. So half the disciples, you know, you look at um, Moses's birth story was an act of civil disobedience. Um, uh, he, you know, he was floated down a river and rescued by the he Hebrew midwives. It was an act of defiance to the imperial orders. You look at, you know, the um, Exodus and the uh, God rescuing uh, these these Hebrew slaves from Egypt. Uh, the stories in the prophets Samuel, uh, I mean, uh, of, of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, in the fiery furnace for defying the royal orders. Daniel was. Uh, uh, put in the lion's den. Jeremiah was jailed. John the Baptist was beheaded. You know, John of Patmos, who wrote Revelation, wrote it in exile. So there's like this history of kind of holy troublemaking that we even see in Jesus. I think Jesus is challenging um, some of those power structures, uh, and that even leads him to arrest and execution, um, which there's much more that was happening in all that. It, but it's a pinnacle of history, of course. But I think what he's doing is exposing some of those, as the scripture calls it, principalities and powers. And I think that, that that's what we're up against in a lot of this. There is a spiritual element of that. But it's also interesting that Paul, who wrote uh, Romans 13, where he says that we're to be subject to the authorities, we're to respect the authorities that are established by God. That same Paul went to jail, for and he's charged, among other things, with subverting the authority. Um, and he says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against, the, and he uses the word authorities in high places and the principalities and powers in this world. So there are times where I think our authorities astray from God's uh, call to love our neighbor. And that's where our job as, as Christians is to um, be obedient to God's call for us to love. And so sometimes I prefer, rather than civil disobedience, I prefer, prefer to say divine obedience. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that there are two ways to submit to authority. And one of them is by respecting the good laws. And the second one is by respectfully uh, suffering the consequences for disobeying the bad laws. And going to jail is one of the ways that we can respect authority and expose those bad laws. So, um, I, you know, I've since that first arrest, I've uh, participated in civil disobedience in, uh, multiple times that has uh, landed us in jail, you know, dozens of times, but many of the times we won in court because we were arguing um, a case around kind of that, uh, 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 you know, sort of a spirit, an, an authority to, to try to love our neighbor. Um, for instance, when we went to Iraq, um, we took medication to Iraqi hospitals, and that was technically illegal. It was a violation of the sanctions that we had on Iraq. But, you know, we had on our side the scripture that says, love your enemy. It says in Romans, if your enemy's hungry, feed them. We thought that at least would include, you know, taking basic medications to hospitals that we were volunteering in. So um, anyway, I think that's part of it. So you ask, you know, what's our role in the world? And I love how Dr. Martin Luther King said this. He said, that the church is meant neither to be the servant or the master of the state. The church is meant to be the conscience, 
the conscience of the state, the conscience of our nation. So I think, you know, we are meant to stir people's hearts with love and compassion. And one of the ways that we do that is by exposing the bad laws. And, and I think one way that we can expose those is by suffering the consequences of disobeying um, the, those laws that are out of sync with, you know, God's love. That's really good. I, I think, you know, part of what you're bringing up that is so good for people to hear is the nuance of scripture too. You know, sometimes when people say, well, Romans 13, we're like, well, don't forget everything else Paul wrote, you know, in, in full context. And that's so great that you're bringing that piece up because you do, you know, Matt, when he shared about, you know, come from his punk background, it's funny, like when I engaged your material, I was coming from honestly, my background is like super charismatic, like upbringing, and then really far away from Jesus for a large season. When I entered back in, it was in a safe place, like safe, safe, you know, the church was safe, the feeling of it was safe. And then when I engaged your book for the first time, I was like, wait, what? Like, I can't, I can't, but there, but the, the important piece to that is like the nuance and the challenge of what guys like Paul wrote and, and it forces our hand to see how serious we are about following Jesus. And, um, oh, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking about this, like, do you, you're involved with so many different things and you talked about being arrested, you know, dozens of times. And, and I know I've seen you in different States. It's not just there, you know, where you are. And do you find that there's a difference between, uh, secular civil disobedience and Christian civil disobedience? Do you see any nuance there between those two? Well, so that's a great question, John. And I, I I would say I, I don't divide the world up into Christian and secular in, in this like purest way. And this is why is because I don't see that there's, uh, huge continuity in how Christians engage um, and how non-Christians would engage. Like I see folks that have protests that are holding crosses and they're dancing on, you know, a doctor's grave after they've shot an abortion doctor or blown up an abortion clinic or, I mean, there's really terrible versions of Christianity. Um, Even now militia groups that are, claiming God's going to protect us. But I mean, we don't see these paradoxes that God's going to protect us. So I don't need to wear a mask, but somehow I need to have a gun. (laughs) And and so, but I, you know, I think these militia groups that are protesting on the Capitol steps, many of them are claiming to be Christian, but I think what you're, what you're asking is good because there should be right there. There should be a distinctive humility and love um, and nonviolence that is a part of, um, our public witness, especially if we're going to do like a prophetic witness that might involve direct action or getting arrested. Uh, I think it should have the essence of Jesus and the fruits of the spirit on it, you know? Um, But like I said, I've been a part of many marches that are interfaith or that are deeply rooted in nonviolence that may not be, you know, Christian. They may be broader than that, though there's many Christians involved, but I'm proud to be a part of those because, um, uh, they have the spirit of uh, that I see in Christ, a part of those. So I'm always um, want to be a part of witnesses that have that, you know, whether they're led by Christians or not. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there, again, there are times to practice di- civil disobedience and there are other times not to, we teach the kids in our neighborhood, you can get arrested for doing stuff that's wrong and you can get arrested for doing stuff that's right. 
Um, and right now, I think when we're when we're asking questions of like what do, what what's a proper response, the question is what does love require of us right now, right? And so love for us meant sharing food, even though our law said we couldn't. Our our um, our, our Bible may say welcome immigrants, you know, as if they were your own flesh and blood. Um, but our our political systems may you know have a different uh, uh, laws in place, or you know taking. Uh, medicine to Iraq may be illegal, whatever. So I think that 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 challenge is there. But we, the great thing is that we've um, we've had police officers arresting us, tell us thank you for what you're doing, and they mm. say we we're with you. Like, and I always say, well, then why are you arresting? You know, but no, <laughs> but you know, we've had we we had police officers come to court to kind of argue in our defense of how respectful we were, and that we weren't there to disrupt or be mean or hostile. We, we, in fact, were there because our conscience wouldn't let us do otherwise. So um, t- maybe two questions, but my first would be, how do you all deal with, so we, we talk a lot and think of a lot about intersectionality here. And, um, one conversation that keeps coming up, especially now that the um, the idea of the devaluing of the black life is again in the forefront um, with, again, the, the murder of Mr. Arbery. Um, how do you deal with the fact that as you say these things and teach these things and, sh- and show these things with your life about the civil disobedience, how do you approach the fact that like the three of us as white men or you as a white man are going to be treated differently by those police in a lot of cases than maybe a brother or sister from uh, a black church, you know, a black brother or sister um, who wants to engage in the same way, but is maybe afraid or has uh, proof that they will not be treated kindly. It's, it's the paradox of, you know, you see the memes online of like, well, how come these white guys can bring guns to the Capitol? But, like, you know, these these folks can even like pray in public without getting beaten down. Um, how, how do you and sort of like maybe your community engage that um, as you continue to, to enact uh, direct action and like civil disobedience? Yeah. So the, the this is a, you know, really, really great thing to talk about and explore, because I think that there are lots of different uh, manifestations of love and courage. Um, And not all are going to end up with people getting arrested, though. I look at some of the courage of like Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem or Bree Newsom taking down the Confederate flag, which in fact, she was arrested, you know, that those there's different ways that people have courage and courage is contagious, you know, but I don't think that going to jail is the only way that we can be courageous or that. And, and I think when we have different social locations, as you're kind of mentioning, like, we're allowed to take different risks. I, I mean, I've also got white friends that have been incarcerated, so they're sure as heck not going to uh, be able to go back to jail, you know, but the, I think we can all have different roles that we play um, in that. And those of us who are able to risk arrest at times may do that, you know, but it's not to be seen as I think better or, you know, more courageous or something else than the many folks that are their survival itself is courageous. Right. Mm-hmm. Um 
but the, the, it also is, I mean, the whole backdrop for this is people of struggle who have, you know, as, as so many in the Black Lives Matter movement say, we have nothing to lose but our chains. And that's part of why I think we see this courage in the civil rights movement um, in the sit-ins and um, places where folks were, they were risking their lives, you know, um, and many of them lost their lives. Um, so that's the backdrop. And so, I mean, I think we approach that with fear and trembling and have massive respect for the Rosa Parks and the Dr. King. I mean, and Dr. King, you know, they said, um, you can burn down our houses and we will still love you. You can throw us in jail and we will still love you. You can put your dogs on us and we will still love you. You can threaten our children and we will still love you, but we will wear you down by our love. And it's that love that, um, you know, Dostoevsky spoke of when he said, this is not the sentimental love of fairy books and story tales. You know, like th th this is, this is like, th this is the courageous love that, that, that can, you know, cost you life. So I think that's, that's what we're, the, that's the history that we're um, walking in the steps of that cloud of witnesses. Um, the Harriet Tubman's, you know, the Underground Railroad, the folks that risked their lives. And part of that was, was uh, because they were um, disobeying the orders of white supremacy um, and powers and the powers that be. Um, so uh, the other thing I, I think that's important and, and, you know, like worth mentioning in all of this is that, Things like Romans 13, uh, where this respect the authorities, like these are some of the most abused verses in the Bible. Um, this was the exact text that has justified some of the biggest injustices in history that led to the um, complicity with Nazi Germany and Hitler. Hitler came to power with the Bible in his hand. Um, saying horrific things, deadly theology. To this day, the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, has a whole thing on their website about their theology, uh, and they claim to be a Christian organization. So, you know, as as white folks were lynching uh, black folks in the, uh, the like, we we had the Bible in our hands. We went to church on Sunday morning. Um, and did these horrific things. So I think we've got to see the holes in that theology when we use something like Romans 13 as a blank check to government, which, I mean, we start to see that crack. You know, I mean, even now, the folks that said, you know, well, Romans 13 to the Black Lives Matter movement, they're some of the same folks that are marching on the Capitol, you know, or Jerry Falwell just said that he believes in civil, civil disobedience if they take away the guns in Virginia. You know, and you're like, man, this is the same guy that told us Romans 13, throw it at us every time, you know. So, uh, but yeah, we read it with a certain perspective, you know. Um, like when I was in Iraq, you'd think, how do you read that as an Iraqi Christian, you know, Sub submit to the authorities? Well, I mean, what if your leader Saddam Hussein, you know, and why would our government be taking him out if he's established by God? Or you go, people are saying Trump's established by God because Romans 13 says it, but they wouldn't say the same about Obama. So there's, you know, there's a lot of holes in that theology that I think we, that are, they're worth putting our finger on. Um, because one of my mentors said, when you twist the cross, you get a swastika. And there are a lot of people that are twisting the cross and not as explicit a, a way as, uh, you know, Nazis and, uh, you know, the KKK. But there's very subtle versions that I think white Christians are shaped more by their whiteness than by Christ and by the gospel. Mm. That's interesting. When you think about some of the um, bigger issues today, 
Um, what are some things you wish you would see Christians be more passionate about that maybe they've been, you know, either ignoring or have just hopped on a side and, you know, stuck there? I, you know, we get in conversations all the time with people around politics and, and I bring it up a decent amount. Some people say all the time in my sermons, but um, I bring it up a decent amount just to expose certain things because I have conversations with folks sometimes where they're like, I mean, I'm technically I'm technically a Democrat or technically Republican, but man, I don't really fit. And they feel like in this weird space. And what were some things you just wish that, you know, people would be like a little more adamant about that might war against, you know, their quote unquote side, but would actually reveal a passion for Jesus? Yeah, I'm I'm really passionate about um, I'm not partisan, right? I, I a lot of times say I'm I'm committed to Jesus, not to the left or the right, you know, um, and some of these things are not about the political left and right. They're about right and wrong, you know, and when I look at Jesus, I sort of see stuff that critiques the left and the right, you know, and I and definitely cr- critique self-righteousness and every iteration that it has. And so, um, but I, I, this is what I came to see you guys in, um, is that we have a, um, we need a more robust ethic of life. Um, and I grew up saying that I was pro-life, but I really only thought about one issue, abortion. And I think that abortion is an issue that matters, but it's not the only one that matters. And I began to see how inconsistent my pro-life ethic was. I was really just anti-abortion. And it was, it was like, you know, life began um, at conception and ended at birth because on almost every other life issue, I was uh, inconsistent. I, you know, I was for the death penalty. We own guns, you know, my family was a military family. So I came to see that you can um, be pro guns, pro death penalty, pro military, and still say you're pro life <laughs> as long as you got abortion right, you know. So I, you know, I've come to see that that that, that there these are other issues of life, um, like Black Lives Matter um, is is about life, um, the environment, um, gun violence, death penalty. Um, so um, welcoming immigrants, you know, some of these these issues of life that. Um, if we believe that every person is created in the image of God and that when a life is squashed or cut short in our world, like we lose a part of God's image and God feels that personally, um, that affects us. And, and so I began to really work on two major issues recently because I saw that Christians on these two issues have not been the champions of life we've been the obstacles and that's the death penalty and gun violence 85 percent of executions are in the bible belt the bible belt is the death belt and the the death penalty has survived in america not in spite of christians but because of us uh so that began to mess with me because it also raises some really fundamental uh, fundamental core convictions of my faith which is do i believe that anybody is beyond redemption so that was one, you know, and the other is guns, where I think, uh, um, you know, Christians own guns at a higher rate than the general population. Um, white evangelical Christians are the highest gun owning demographic in America. And, I, you know, I, I just find it really difficult to reconcile Jesus's cross with 
a gun, um, you know, and, and they, they show us, I think, two very different versions of what power and love look like. And one says, I'm willing to kill. And the other says, I'm willing to die. And, um, and, and so I, you know, I've chosen to follow the cross. And to me, that means really the challenging, uh, the gun and our, um, our kind of myth of redemptive violence, that violence is going to solve our violence. Yeah. Would you say like on the gun issue, um, what would you say to someone that would just came to you and said, well, Hey, either I just, a just have it for protection, you know, or, um, or B I like to hunt. What would you, what would you say in those scenarios? Oh, I would, I would say a few things. First of all, is that I'm a, I'm a, I'm really, really, um, hopeful that, and, and feel, um, really excited that we're having a better conversation around gun violence in, in our country that um, what we're, we're, we're a lot of the folks I know they're not anti-guns as much as anti-gun violence and going, you know, we're losing over a hundred lives a day um, to, to guns and we can do better than that. We're not going to solve, you know, every murder. And if we got rid of every gun, which I'm not even arguing for, but if we got rid of every gun, people would find other ways to kill each other. Like it's not, but there are some things that, that I think we can find common ground on. Like I, I, I marched with a group of hunters that had shirts that said hunters against assault weapons, you know, and, and they said, you don't need 10 rounds to shoot a deer. Um, <laughs> and so there's over 80% of gun owners want to see some basic changes in our country and they're questioning things like why do you need military style weapons you know i mean maybe it's maybe we can argue the second amendment but like when that's the weapon of choice over and over when we we don't have grenades on our streets why do we have guns that are designed to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible and that's why they keep you know being the weapon of choice in mass shootings and stuff so maybe i can sacrifice my rights to own an AR-15 so that we might protect a few more lives uh, and things like handguns. You know, one of these controversial laws in Virginia is actually called one handgun a month, which doesn't take away the right to own handguns, but it says 12 a year per person should be enough. Right? <laughs> and, you're, and you're like, if you're, own, you know, if you're purchasing more than one handgun per month, like, you might not be making the world safer, you know? So I think that like, let's start with that common ground. Now, you know, when I'm talking with Christians, I'd probably want to dig a little deeper on, um, on, you know, do our guns really keep us safe? You know, like all those things. I think there's, there's some of those ideas that, that, you know, become the cliche arguments. The answer to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. I actually don't think that the data backs that up, you know, but anyway, I mean, that, that's not where I'd start. I'd start by saying, I think we, we can have a better conversation on guns. And I also think that proximity makes all the difference, right? Um, that, that when this is personal um, and when gun violence has names and faces, when we know the Ahmaud Arbery's like, like the, you, you, you just begin with grief and lament. You know, and I think that's where we got to start from. And one of the, you know, on on so many of these conversations, we've got to realize that there's a giant fault line of race in America. And a lot of us are seeing and experiencing the world through very different social locations. And so what we've seen is true to us, but we've got to have the humility to see that there are other people 
that are experiencing the world really differently, you know? And that's why when you ask, uh, you know, you do the demographic studies and you say, does racial bias affect policing? Um, overwhelmingly, white folks say no. Then you got a few bad apples, but, you know, and we need to do something about that. But the system generally works. Like, and you ask people of color and they say the exact opposite, like 80%. Yes, and let me tell you the stories of how, you know. So that's where I think, you know, um, sometimes our lack of compassion is more a lack of proximity and, and it's a relationship thing. You know, like we, we, we are experiencing the world in a certain way, but we're, you know, extending that to, to say, well, you know, what's been true for me must be true for someone regardless to the color of their skin. Yeah, that's really good. Um, Matt, do you have some, I was just gonna, uh, so I have a closing question because uh, we want to be respectful of Shane's time. But why don't you go ahead and ask your question and then I'll, I'll close with one more. One quick one. Well, uh, maybe. Um, <laughs> what, uh, you know, th- with this being an elect- election year and everything, this, I know this is outside of civil disobedience, but like I think it all is related. What convictions do you wish people had when they like when they go to vote? Like if you could suggest like, hey, you're a Christian um, here's, here's just something to process when you're casting your vote. What would be like one just encouragement to people as they're kind of processing what to do this November? So when I said that, you know, this, the, Jesus lifts up this law, there's no greater law than this love, you know, love God, love your neighbor. Um, that, that's the question really is what, what is it? Let's vote for love. But, and, and the scripture's really clear that, fear and love are enemies, you know, that perfect love casteth out fear that that these are like opposing magnets. They can't occupy the same space. And so I think we've got to choose between fear and love as a country. And so many of our policies are being driven by fear, our obsession with guns and militarism and a wall at the border. So much of it is about fear rather than asking the question, what does love require of me? Like what, what does it mean to responsibly welcome asylum seekers and immigrants and and you know to to um that that's that's what i would uh, say and and um I, I think that you know how we've treated immigrants is very indicative because jesus talked about the least of these and the widows and the orphans you know but the least of these he says when you welcome the stranger you welcome me when you don't welcome the stranger you don't welcome me i mean it can't get much more crystal clear than that you know and so i I think some of these they they um neither the democrats or the republicans i think have a silver you know have the solution on all this but we've got to say i have a deeper commitment than um the republicans and democrats my commitment is to love my commitments to jesus and jesus said we're to welcome the immigrants we're to care for the the least of these so that's uh that's what i i hope we go to and and there always will be people that go well you know you can't vote for love i mean there's you know neither candidate really embodies love perfectly and i would say then this is the beautiful thing about you know in our book jesus for president we talk about is the the christians have always had a strange political imagination that when we said when the early christians said jesus is lord it was a declaration that caesar is not lord right and I think we can go saying like, my, my fidelity, my allegiance is to Jesus. And my vote is 
my best attempt on this particular day, day to do damage control, uh, to harness the principalities and powers, right? So I want to vote for the person, whoever I vote for, not thinking that they're the Messiah or the Savior, or the, you know, it's going to restore everything. That's what everybody was saying about Caesar, right? Like, I'm voting for someone that I hope is going to do the least amount of damage to the world and has at least as big an ethic of life and love as I can vote for. And that's uh, how I, the posture I'll be coming with. So it's uh, um, not, not overly optimistic, but I do think, <laughs> you know, abstaining from voting can land us with what we have now, which I'm, I'm deeply, deeply troubled by the language, the rhetoric, the tweets, the fear, the hatred, the bullying. I mean, you look at the fruits of the spirit and if this is what God is like, you know, um, uh, I'm very concerned about our current administration. Yeah. So, yeah, we do want to be respectful of your time. I want to ask you one more question. Um, so I recently uh, had a, a friend of mine, Chris, who um, I gave uh, Jesus for President and Irresistible Revolution, and he he read them. And um, his big takeaway or, like, his big question he, – he enjoyed the books uh, massively, and we've had um, great conversations. Um, but his big takeaway from it um, was – Okay, but what? What now? What do I do? Um, and I realize, and so does he, that the the books are not uh, prescriptive; they're descriptive of your experience and stuff like that. But this is something I hear a lot of people who I have engaged with, not just your content, but like some of the like um, Brother Lawrence and Saint Francis, and like some you know some of the other stuff that that um, you talk about. Their big question going away with it is, well, but, you know, like I got three kids and, and a full-time job and like I can't just drop it and go move to Philly or move somewhere and, and make my own pants or, or uh, you know, help uh, with, the, with the food distribution stuff right now. Or I'm just so – I don't know what to do. Like I, want, I love this. I track with it. But like what do I do now? <laughs> um, what is something that – what is like some encouragement or some first steps or some thoughts – some reading that you would recommend to people who engage with some of these ideas who have, um, whether it's through your books or, or just the Bible or somewhere else, have this idea of like, oh, wait, holy troublemaking is a thing. It's, it's, our, it's our inheritance. It's something, you know, they have their world turned upside down just like the three of us have, but they're already in a place where they're like full-time job. Maybe there's people, maybe a parent is depending on them or a kid is depending on them or whatever. Um, and they feel stuck between really wanting to live out that revolutionary lifestyle and change things for themselves, but like not just abandon their old life. Mm. Yeah. I, th I think of the scripture in Romans uh, where it, uh, it says, let us not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, right? To live with a new imagination really is the invitation of that, that scripture. And, and I don't, I don't think nonconformity means uniformity. It doesn't mean that we're all going to do exactly the same thing. In fact, even the two, two tax collectors that follow Jesus, Zacchaeus and Matthew, they respond in kind of different ways. One of them sort of sells everything he has. And the other one, you know, gives fifth, he gives half of everything away. I, you know, Zacchaeus, he's like, got too much stuff, get rid of the clutter. But then he begins to pay people back four times what he owed them. So he spins the system on its head. Um, and I, I think the invitation and in all of that is one, to lean in to the, the suffering of the world. As we love Jesus, we, 
we aren't trying to move away from the suffering, but we're trying to actually allow it to affect us, right? I mean, the whole story of Jesus is about a God that leaves the comfort of heaven to join the struggle here on earth. And so that's what we're called to. And, and that's when I think when we grow in closer proximity to those who are suffering the brunt of these injustices, it redefines how we use our gifts. And so we might still be a school teacher, but we might be a different kind of school teacher. We might still be a doctor, but we might be doing something different in the pandemic. You know, we might um, uh, be a lawyer, but concentrate on immigration law or defend clients that can't afford good lawyers, whatever. You know, I think there's a million different ways. And that's why I don't want to prescribe, you know, exactly how to do it. But I think like the call of Jesus is a call to be closer to the hurting um, and to allow that to affect us. Um, and, uh, um, and some of this, we've got to have some grace with ourselves because we're exercising muscles that have atrophied a little bit. So you don't run a marathon without warming up and without, you know, so I think we need some like holy habits and some spirit, you know, we, we've got to like begin to work out our soul and our communal muscles. And, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I sometimes, I heard somebody say like, the hardest part about a marathon is not getting to the finish line. It's getting to the starting line. Uh, so, so sometimes we've just got to show up where we see people already doing it. If we let's get, you know, right now people can be writing folks who are incarcerated and people on death row. Um, you know, we can be doing a lot around immigration right now and joining groups that are already out there. So sometimes I think for white folks, especially, we've just got to put ourselves in places where we're a minority more often and where we're joining work that's already out there rather than trying to start something brand new. Awesome. Well, thank you. Well, OK, one more question. Did you manage <laughs> did you manage to get tickets for one of the Rage Against the Machine uh, reunions? Of course, a punk rocker would uh, ask that. Yeah. No. no uh, well, you know, one of the uh, th there are so many heavy things happening during the pandemic that yeah. um, it's hard to lament the uh, canceled Rage Against the Machine tour, but it is one of the many uh, cancellations uh, of the pandemic. So I, I will I will confess that I have been to a Rage Against the Machine show, but it's been many years. Uh, but I think that that holy anger, there's something there that the church, church can use a little more of. Yeah, I remember you talking in, in one of the books about sitting. I think it was when you're at Willow Creek sitting and listening to them on the uh, on your headphones and feeling cognitive, great cognitive dissonance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Very uh, the, cool. The, the PG version, of course. <laughs> sure, right. sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah right. No, but it's uh, it's great to talk with you, you guys, and I'm I'm uh, honored to be your guest. Have me back sometime, and uh, keep yeah. at it, y'all. Keep stirring up the holy mischief. Absolutely. We'll have, to, we'll have to get you live. Come down to the church when everyone can travel I love again. That. Yeah, yeah. it'll be that. fun. Yeah, cool. plenty, plenty of stuff to protest in Virginia. We'll get you down here for a double threat. <laughs> yeah, like, like you said, I think we, you know, it's, it's so good that you're having these conversations because people are really good at talking about folks that agree with them on everything. And I learned so much more from people that I'm, you know, that challenge me than just the people that say amen to everything. And I think we, our political polarization has a lot of self-righteousness, like I, I said, that's nonpartisan, right? There's conservative yeah. and progressive uh, folks that are really mean, and even though they might be really smart too. Um, I, I was in Texas, and this guy came up to me, and he goes, I'm a redneck, man. I got to tell you that. I'm, you know, pickup truck driving, gun carrying redneck. He said, but I've been reading your stuff, and 
messed me up and he said i wanted you to pray with me because i'm a recovering redneck <laughs> and uh, i think we're all recovering from something so that's what building this community is about i think is like uh, you know we're not interested in people being more like us we're in pe- interested in all of us being a little bit more like jesus so thanks for uh having a conversation with me though that's awesome. awesome. Thanks, well, Shane. Thanks so much, Shane. Um, and thanks to everyone out there for listening. If you have questions, comments, concerns, quips, or quotes, you can send them to staycurious at hillcityrva.com. You can follow us on Instagram at staycuriouspod. Um, and you can, if you get a second, rate and review us and share the episode um, so that we can keep the conversation going. Thanks again to Shane for being here. Thanks to you all for listening. And until next time, remember, stay curious. Stay curious.